He's the editor-in-chief of the Cornell Review, a young scholar at Cornell University. He hosted a talk show that broadcast to 20 million people, and he's just getting started. The one, the only, Joe Silverstein. Okay, so I'm with Jennifer Cabany. She is the editor-in-chief of The College Fix. Uh, Jen, how are you doing? Great, thank you. Fantastic. Okay, so let's jump right in. So The College Fix launched this cancel culture database, which Cornell University ranks fairly high on. So my first question is, before we jump into Cornell specifically, what inspired The College Fix to launch this database? So... Being a daily news website focused on higher education, we were constantly reporting on these examples of censorship, suppression, and outright cancellation on college campuses across the nation. And it was coming fast and furious, at least one or two or three of these types of stories every week. And it almost became so repetitive in a way that we were losing track Mm-hmm. Of the scope, the sheer scope and magnitude of the, of the of the problem. So we decided to create a one-stop shop database so we could quantify, remember, and track everything that has been targeted or suppressed over the last several years in higher education. Yeah. It's really incredible. I mean, the only thing that I could think that compares to this on a national level is for critical race theory. Uh, Legal Insurrection has a critical race theory tracker, and that's completely separate. That's not a cancel culture tracker. But in terms of, like, like the different organizations that cover higher education, you guys are definitely the first to uh, – or I should say we are at the College Fix – the first to actually, um, uh, you know, put a a systemic tracker, so to speak. I want to ask you about – some of the specific events on the list here and sort of get your opinion on each of them. Uh, first is sort of, I, I sort of conceptualize these cancel culture attempts as two different things. There's, there's cancel culture aimed at destroying our history. For example, trying to remove, um, the, uh, a formal, a former Cornell university president, um, for, past statements or past positions. And then there's cancel culture that's intended to limit free speech today. For example, um, you have in the list here uh, that the professor, the chemistry professor, Professor Dave Collum, uh, they attempted to have fired because he questioned uh, the Buffalo incident with the police brutality where they had uh, shoved a an older man who got in their faces and the old man fell and, and got hurt later turned out the old man was like an anarchist and posted about this on his twitter so how do you view just i guess we'll jump right in first to to that incident do do you how much do you recall that incident and sort of just like what are your thoughts on something like that that a professor expressing an opinion about something in the news um there's people calling for him to be fired and lose his job because of that so that occurred um right after george floyd Mm mm-hmm Incident. So he he was caught up in a large wave of student demands and professor demands for actively anti-racism action on college campuses, and we this, it's very common for professors who voiced any kind of concern um, about the reaction. <clears throat> 
to what happened to George Floyd, you know, in terms of the, the rioting and the looting um, and the anti-police sentiment. Anybody who criticized that found themselves in the crosshairs. Um, not only um, this professor, but also uh, you might recall William Jacobson, right. who, who at its legal insurrection, he also um, criticized sort of, you know, the, the dogma behind the Black Lives Matter movement. And he was publicly censured by his dean. Right. Uh, one of the, what's that's one of the examples we have, but but his dean actually publicly censured him. Of course, his uh, law students were trying to um, you know get him uh, fired or or to you know hurt his career in some way. So anybody you know that that takes on any sort of criticism of the um, burgeoning anti-racism uh, narrative and movement of which Black Lives Matter is a part uh, is quickly uh, found as a, a, a target. For this type of cancel culture campaign. Right, absolutely. I want to ask you about one specific incident that happened going back to 2016, right after the election of President Trump. Um, so there was the Cornell Republicans president who was attacked on campus after Trump's election, and someone actually uh, shoved her to the ground and, and told her, uh, F you, and they didn't say F you, they said, you know, the actual word, uh, racist bitch, you support a racist party. Um, I want to ask you about this incident specifically because this student is not actually, or now she's no longer a student, but at the time, this student was not exactly this like person who's really this right winger. This was a very centrist Republican who actually uh, openly said she didn't support the president, which, of course, I'm against that position. I support the president, meaning the, the 45th president. Um, but she said that she didn't support the president. So the reason I ask you that is, there's sort of this view that cancel culture is, is, is only aimed at either the furthest right among us, and I'm not saying that people who support Trump are the furthest right, but aimed at the furthest right among us or aimed at uh, you know only a certain subsect of the population. But it's really anyone who doesn't conform with, with this sort of like neo-Marxist agenda because this is someone who intentionally tried to portray herself as a moderate, middle-of-the-road person – and, and and it didn't matter. She might as well have been walking around in a Build-A-Wall shirt because she was treated the same way. Yeah, this this incident that occurred in 2016 is, is, is pretty extreme and troubling um, to be actually physically assaulted on an Ivy League campus by a peer for being a moderate Republican. Um, it just is a reminder of the... Uh, violence and vitriol over the Trump election and should have been more roundly condemned on the campus as a whole. I recall during that time, I think, I think it was a collective shrug for the most part among administrators. Um, so I think it just, the incident speaks more to the intolerance of the left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's another example of how any, um, deviation from from their uh, viewpoint or agenda or opinion is quickly um, violently attacked, even either verbally or through policy, or in this instance, which thankfully is rare, an actual physical assault. Yeah, 
Yeah, certainly. Um, I will say the other thing, too, is that the prevalence of physical assaults in these cases, I think, depends on sometimes the college that you're at. Like, I transferred from Binghamton University, and I was at Binghamton University for the Art Laffer protests. I was part of the college Republicans, um, and there were students flipping tables and getting up in um, people's faces to protest the, the speech by Art Laffer, who, of course, is an advisor to Trump and, and others. Um, and I, I do wonder, and there's, there haven't really been any studies that have been done one way or the other to show this, but my inclination would be to think that, um, even though the Ivy League campus is just as liberal or, or leftist really as the other campuses, I wonder if the sort of the trend of violence increases as you go up or down the college rankings. Like in other words, does it just because it's rare at Cornell that, that people are physically attacked, is that because people... Uh, some of the Cornell students reject those th that as a mechanism of political expression, or is it more so just because they're Ivy League students and they don't want to risk their own status in society, but perhaps they still endorse uh, such actions? And, and that's kind of like a troubling question. Well, I can only uh, speak to the general idea in the sense of there was a recent survey done by the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education in uh, collaboration with Real e Clear Education. And they interviewed 37,000 students from across the nation uh, in the, during the spring semester, um, and they published the results in the fall. And what that found was that upwards of 20% of students thought that Violence was an acceptable form of protest. Which is insane. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> just just for the record. <laughs> yeah, so it was, a, it was a really sort of jarring and troubling finding. Actually, one of the most troubling findings of that particular survey. Uh, this growing idea that violence is an acceptable form of protest among young people. And since that survey looked at, you know, 37,000 students from across the nation, we can assume that includes students at uh, more elite colleges as well as, um, you know, those at the state schools. Right. One of the... Um... One of the things that I think is really concerning is that I feel this is now bled into mainstream culture, whereas even five years ago, people would kind of like dismiss it and say, oh, those are just crazy college kids. And that's just like sort of crazy college stories and things that happen on campuses. But what happens is when this kind of behavior becomes institutionalized over a period of time and we're consistently training all these college graduates to have this this really neo-Marxist worldview where violence is acceptable as a form of uh, revolution against the quote-unquote oppressors, uh, essentially. Uh, it, blame, it it bleeds into the mainstream culture. Now you see uh, in the streets political violence, especially throughout 2020. So what do you think is the relationship there? Do you think that a lot of sort of the, the strife that we're seeing in mainstream American life started from this sort of movement within the universities? Yes, so there's a kind of a common refrain that you hear a lot nowadays, and that is, quote, we all live on campus now, end quote. Yeah. And the idea behind that is, is yes, everything that we saw that began on, on campuses has now bled into and is part of the mainstream culture. And that includes the uh, Ivy League graduates running Silicon Valley and essentially big tech and essentially our way of communicating now. Now these people that support bias response teams that believe that 
uh, unpopular opinions should be shouted down and suppressed. They're the ones in charge of our uh, social media accounts. Right. And so it, it, it has a major impact, not just in terms of, you know, the kind of, of protesting we see in the streets, but also in the way that we communicate uh, and share information and have the ability to have these open debates in society. So if you're on a college campus and you you don't think that you should be you should have to be subjected to a center right opinion on campus, wait until you're running, you know, Google's right. <laughs> you know, firm and, and then you just this is all a part of what we're seeing now, and it's a tr- very troubling trend and, and part of the inspiration for tracking all of this type of uh, examples on the cancel culture database. Absolutely. Is it reversible? Do you think this trend is reverse, uh, reversible? Well, it, we have to continue to fight the good fight for the First Amendment rights that so many people fought and died for. I mean, the First Amendment is the one of the most important rights that holds America as the greatest nation on the planet. And so if we don't fight to keep it, we will lose it, and we already are losing it, and it's only going to get worse. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And and unfortunately, um, I think a lot of young people nowadays are growing up in a time where they're used to this kind of suppression and nanny statism and safetyism. And so they they weren't they weren't raised in a generation like I was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, where you could say anything you want, do anything you want. You could have these difficult conversations without being shouted down or, or becoming a pariah. This, the younger generation hasn't experienced that freedom. And so they don't know what they've lost. Right. Yeah, well, you could even see it in sort of the eyes of people on campus when you challenge the notion of white privilege or toxic masculinity. You could almost see sometimes like the shock in the other students' eyes that you would actually like challenge these things. And it's it's really just uh, incredible. Not in the best way, but it's really incredible. I do want to ask you about one more uh, incident with regard to Cornell before we wrap up. So this here is a story that uh, we worked on together at Cornell Pro Hong Kong uh, Fight for Freedom signage, repeatedly vandalized, destroyed. So this is interesting because this is sort of at the intersection of cancel culture and international relations because in this case um, – presumably, and and it's hard to prove, but presumably the people that are ripping down these Hong Kong signs would be the international students from China. And it certainly constitutes a suppression of free speech from a foreign power, and that foreign power being China. So I'm just wondering if you could touch on on that and sort of just the influence of China on camps. I saw the College Fix report on another story with regard to a Turning Point USA group that's being investigated for, I think, calling coronavirus the CCP virus, and dare I say accurately calling the coronavirus the CCP virus. Uh, So just if you could talk about that. And then also, um, with regard to that, the interesting thing is in that case, the Chinese students are actually acting to defend their nation and their regime, right? Like, as, as bad as it is and as crazy as it is, the Chinese students are actually taking down these signs which are um, criticizing their country. And it's so weird when you juxtapose that to our students when we need that same level of patriotism. But in so many cases, our students are being trained by the professors and the media and the system um, and the culture to hate our country and to hate its institutions 
which is far superior to China's institutions. However, the Chinese students are being uh, institutionalized within their own country and propagandized into loving their country. So what do you think about that dynamic? Well, that's a a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I I will say that it's it's probably a good... uh, a good bet to, to assume that the the people taking down the pro Hong Kong posters are, you know, uh, students that have been, well, from what I understand, told by the CCP to, um, you know, clamp down on, on any, you know, anti-China rhetoric on right. campus. Right. Apparently it's not just at Cornell, it's at almost every university in, in the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, the CCP is actively, engaging its um its students you know from china uh to make sure that there is no anti-chinese sentiment or rhetoric anywhere on campus um and that was that was documented really well in a recent ProPublica uh, report that kind of explained how the the, the chinese communist party uh, has infiltrated and controls you know students not only ones who have agreed to to actively defend you know China on campus, but those who are trying to speak out, you know, with the the threats, the intimidation tactics that they use to silence them. So, but it's just kind of overall in general, it's just kind of sad and shocking that a poster defending freedom and democracy is ripped down on an Ivy League campus. I mean, just just in general, that in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the idea that defending democracy and freedom is so controversial and offensive that that how many times has this young man done? I mean, over a hundred times he's put up these posters, and every single time it's ripped down. Yeah, yeah. So and, it, and there's been yeah. and there's been no serious effort by the administration to crack down on the ripping down of these posters. Like I could only imagine if someone posted hundreds of, of Black Lives Matter. Um, posters across the campus, and they were continuously ripped down. There'd be police force deployed. There'd be cameras installed. There'd be countless university statements. Um, and in that case, we wouldn't even necessarily know who the source was. In this case, we essentially know who the source is. It's the international students from China, and there's been no effort whatsoever from the administration to to, to prevent this from happening. Yeah, well, see, that's the thing about uh, the cancel culture situation is it they they don't really care about when it happens to center-right libertarian independent-minded conservative or republican students right they only really care or do anything about um so-called marginalized voices so the administration is complicit in the problem Mm -hmm. yeah i agree for sure yeah and in some cases they're perpetrating it like in the jacobson case with the law school dean etc etc but um, I will say, Jen, it's always a great honor and a great pleasure to speak, and we have to do this again soon because this is really great work you guys are doing with regard to this database. It's really important. Well, thank you, and you know, if we if we missed any examples, let me know. There's a way you can uh, submit uh, entry suggestions. So you you know, if you go to the database and you want to submit an entry, you can do that. You can fill out a form, um, and then we vet it. 
and um, add it to the add it to the list if we if we missed one. So this is kind of a, at this point moving forward, it's a crowdsourced right. sort of um, you know endeavor, so that we can all sort of take part in chronicling and tracking uh, and quantifying this issue. Right, and taking back the country and it, and its freedoms. <laughs> Great. So yeah, I mean you know again at the end of the day, um, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure, and we're seeing that here. So, and it's really interesting too. Um, and I guess we'll get to this at a, a, a later time, perhaps in a subsequent conversation. But just the fact that things like really the hist- the brutal history of Maoism and Stalinism isn't really taught at the universities and in the curriculums, and instead we have stupid things like uh, teaching assistants comparing the American police force to the Russian police force in classes and talking about... And, and actually at Cornell, you have that class about how black holes are racist. Oh, yeah. Well, we also had a, um, a, a flu vaccine exemption for the flu vaccine mandate, which uh, only applied to African Americans on the basis of their race. I don't know. If, I'm sure... I think the Fix did report on that, actually. Um, yeah, but... we, we did. I... I... I can't remember if they rescinded that or not, but on its face, it was absurd. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. But thank you so much, Jen. Uh, here at The Review, we really appreciate and And let, let's do this again soon. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Joe Silverstein Podcast. Visit www.joesilverstein.com and follow Joe on Twitter at SilversteinUSA. Visit www.thecornellreview.org to keep up with breaking news, our latest articles, and more. Like The Cornell Review on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. God bless America.